Am I on? I am. I am on now. That's good. I wanted to be muted while I was singing, just for <laughs> for your own sake. Um, the um, my wife and I have uh, pastored, and I have been teaching uh, for our whole lives, our whole married life. We've pastored in small churches and small communities and in larger settings. Um, and uh, we've enjoyed that. And I've enjoyed also taking in seminaries, working with students on the master's and doctoral level, trying to equip them for more effective service. And I've certainly enjoyed that. But I've always been interested in wanting to make my maximum impact for God. Isn't that your desire? Let's not do something. Let's do the most we can for Christ and his kingdom. And I was stunned a number of years ago to discover that only 5% of all the leaders of Christian churches everywhere in the world have had any training. 5%. Which means all of our schools all together have a 95% failure rate in equipping the leaders of Christ's church. Just think about that. If you've got a V8 pickup truck and only one cylinder works, how fast are you going to go? Five miles per hour. <laughs> That's about it. Five miles an hour. And what's the speed limit? <laughs> I just think the church could be far more effective if the gifted, godly people that he has raised up to lead his church around the world had the tools they needed to do their job. And I found it fascinating as I studied the Bible. There's no such thing as a pastor in the Bible. There are always pastor teachers, not just a pastor, which means you can't effectively lead Christ's church unless you can understand what the Bible is saying and be able to communicate it effectively to your community. That's the most basic skill you need to have. And 95% can't do that. So this morning, people all around the world are coming to church, wanting to know more about their Savior, how to live a life that pleases Him, how to be tra- they want to be transformed by God's Word, but their leader doesn't know how to understand or communicate the Bible. So a decade ago, we started Crosstalk Global. It's designed to meet that need. We're working now in nine countries on four continents. Um, But our goal is not to start another school, but movements that can meet this great need. We start with a group like we are in Salina. Working with them for over three years, six weeks, spread over three years with lots of homework in between to help them be as effective as they possibly can. But then in those cohorts, we take the best of the best and say, hmm, how would you like in the next generation we start more groups? Would you like to be an apprentice and help in the teaching? And then we say to the best of the best of the apprentices, hmm, how about if we helped train you so you could become an instructor? We want to grow and grow and grow so every culture can hear God's voice. Just a small little goal but I'm encouraged and thrilled by it. There's a brochure you'll find in the back you can pick up, and uh, we've got something coming up Tuesday night where we can share a lot more, so I invite you to do that. So it won't surprise you when I tell you what I'm doing with Crosstalk Global that I'm a little passionate about preaching. In fact, uh, through the years, I have done my best to try and figure out how do we accurately communicate God's Word in a way that changes lives. Um, I've got... Maybe hundreds of books. If you ask my wife, she may say thousands <laughs> uh, that have to do with preaching. And I think there's a lot to be learned from all of them. But the one book that I have found most helpful is this one. 
And the one preacher that I admire the most is Jesus. He didn't just come to die. He could have done that on a long weekend. What he did was he came to preach. He says in Luke chapter 4, I have come to preach to the other towns also, for that is why I have come. So I love to study Jesus' sermons, and he preached a number of different ways. But have you noticed how often he speaks in stories? He's always telling a parable. He's always speaking in story form. Because I think Jesus knew that stories have a unique ability to slip by our defenses, capture our imagination, and stick that truth to our brains in a way that we can never forget. Ooh, stories are powerful. So today, if you'll let me, I'd like to take a, story, a page out of Jesus' preaching book and uh, preach to you a narrative in a narrative way. A little twist on that. Uh, this morning I'd like to do what I've called a first-person sermon where actually become a character in the story and uh, allow that person to tell their story from their point of view. So we not only hear the story, we get to relive the story through the, through the eyes of an eyewitness. You're welcome to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. Or you can just sit back and listen to a true story from someone who lived it. My name is Eliab. And you haven't a clue who I am, do you? <laughs> ah, all my life I wanted to be famous. All my life I wanted to be recognized by all the people of Israel. I wanted my name to be etched into the memories of all of God's people. And you don't even know my name. <laughs> I had a chance. Because when I lived here on earth, it was a time of transition. Ooh, as a young man, Saul was king. Man, we were so thrilled to get a king. Because, well, for one thing, he looked like a king. He was tall. It's a good thing to be tall. Not only that, but he had the hair of a king. It was full and rich, dark black and came back down over his shoulders. Oh, man, he looked impressive. And he had muscles. I mean, his arms bulged in all the right places. And, uh, man, when he flexed his chest, it just did stuff that was impressive. Wow, he looked like a king. And at first, he acted like a king, too. Because, you know, one of the reasons we wanted a king was because we wanted a king to lead us into battle. And he took up the challenge early on. In the tribe of Benjamin, there was a small city called Jabesh-Gilead. But the Amalekites came and surrounded it and threatened to destroy them, threatened all great harm. And no way Jabesh-Gilead could defend itself. And somehow they got word out. And it, word came to King Saul. He heard about their plight. And he broke into action. He sent out couriers to all of the tribes, calling all of Israel to come together to defend Jabesh Gilead. And they all came, thousands of them, and they delivered that city. It was a great victory. That's the kind of king we want. Yeah. And he was. 
for a while. Then um, he uh, began to stray a bit. Samuel was the prophet. And Samuel came to him on two occasions, gave him very clear instructions of what he wanted him to do. God gave instructions and said, I want you to go and do X, Y, and Z. And there was no ambiguity. There was, um, it was as clear as crystal. And Saul deviated. The second time it's when Samuel said, gave God's command that he should go and eliminate the Amalekites, an evil nation. Their sin had risen up to the Lord. And God said, everything must be destroyed. Saul went, won the battle, didn't obey the Lord. Samuel came to confront him and said, did you do what God said? Oh, yes, I did. Yes, he did. He lied. What's the bleeding of sheep that I hear? How come everything wasn't destroyed? What's going on? Oh, no, I did. I didn't. I was fine. No, you weren't. Yes, I was. Well, and then finally he says, well, but it wasn't my fault. The people, you know, the soldiers, they, you know, it was their fault because they really wanted the goods. And so that's why he would not admit his sin. And I'll never forget the stories that were told. That small, frail prophet Samuel stood in front of that huge man, King Saul, poked his bony little finger in the middle of that massive chest and says, this is what the Lord says, because you have rejected the word of God, I reject you as king of Israel. Whew. You don't hear that very often. Looks like Saul's out. I wonder who could be next. You know, we all wonder. Some of us dream. You know, me, I, well, I gave it a little thought, but nothing serious, you know. After all, I was tall. It's a good thing to be tall. I uh, had hair. I mean, not quite like his, but a little oil in it and stuff. You could kind of fluff it up a bit. The muscles were a problem. Um, but, uh, you know, push-ups. Um, I'd pull myself up at least halfway on a bar, maybe. I, uh, ah. Just dreaming. Then one day, we heard that Samuel was on the move. He left his home and he had the horn of anointing oil with him. Woo, someone's going to get chosen. Yeah, yeah, well, don't worry. Then I heard, he's coming to Bethlehem. Are you kidding? He's coming to my hometown? Is Samuel with a horn of anointing oil? I wonder. I wonder. And he came to the, to the gates of the city and said to the elders, he's come. And they said, why are you here? Well, you know, I've just come to sacrifice. That's all. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. And then he said, uh, so do you know a man named Jesse? I'm interested in getting to know a man named Jesse. I'd love to see him and his sons. <laughs> oh, can you believe it? I mean, here they are. Samuel's coming to anoint a king. He's come to my hometown and wants to meet my family so he can use his horn of anointing oil. I tell you, unbelievable day. Have you ever had one of those days where everything seems to be going perfectly? Like your whole life has been lived for this moment. I wanted to be famous, and this was my chance. He's come, and I, okay, secretly, I had a little prepared for it. I had a nice new robe with nice V at the front. I was all set. I raced back, got it on. 
And Samuel said, okay, why don't you guys all line up from the oldest to the youngest? And I came and I took my place. And I stood up as straight as I could because I was not only the oldest, I was the tallest. It's a good thing to be tall. And I was, and it was perfect because the wind blew just at the right moment. It's like God was in control. And the whole robe filled out. Oh, my hair looked pretty good. I came and I saw the corner of my eye. Samuel, he's impressed. His hands going down for the horn of anointing oil, and I'm, I'm ready for it. And then I, okay, well, it went a bit overboard maybe. I turned my head sideways so you could see the most important feature you need to have as a king a good profile. For the coins, you know, you, you don't want an ugly nose or something. You want, a, you want a really nice profile. And I had it. I had the profile. I had the height. The hair, I put some oil in. The chest was a bit of a problem, but I kind of fluffed up the hair the best I could. And, and I'm there, and I can see Samuel bringing up the, the horn of anointing oil. And I'm waiting, waiting to feel that oil on my head cascade over my shoulders. It would give me the smell of royalty. That's what I wanted. And I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. And he kind of has a puzzled look on his face, like someone's whispering in his ear, and he's hesitating. And I wanted to give him more chance, so I'm lingering as long as I can so he can pour it on my head. But it didn't come. (sighs) Son number two. You're going to annoy him instead of me? You know what he did last Tuesday? I got stories to tell on him. You can't. And then he walked across. And then brother number three, four, five, six, seven. Well, this was a brilliant occasion. We all came together, anointed king, and no one got anointed. That was a bust. Samuel was confused. You could tell. And he said to Jesse, those are all your sons, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, it was David, but, you know, a ruddy little kid. He's out looking after the sheep, that's all. I'll get him. Get him. I want to, want to wait for him. We all waited. Finally, David shows up. You see Samuel cock his head a little bit again, like someone's talking in his ear. And Samuel takes out the horn of anointing oil and pours it over him. He's going to be the king? That ruddy little brother of mine, he's going to be the next king of Israel? Why him? Why not me? I'm tall. Did I mention that? I mean, I, I got hair and, okay, muscles, but, you know, like basically I qualify. And the sacrifice went and the feast began. But I wasn't that hungry. I found a way to sidle up to Samuel and say, what gives here? I thought you were going to anoint me. And he said, yeah, I, I thought I was going to too. But God said to me, right when I was about to, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, great, so what's wrong with my heart? God looks at the heart. Yeah, but I have a heart. He has a heart. What's the heart of a leader? I mean, what are you talking about here? Silence. And it was obvious that Samuel made the right choice because, you know, God arranged circumstances for him. He was ushered into the palace. Um, Saul had a problem with fits and, and music seemed to soothe him. So they called David to come right in and 
try and help. I know he played an instrument, but you know, I, I practiced on an instrument once in a while. Why him? Why not me? Why did God choose David and not me? What's, what's, how is his heart different from mine? What's the heart of a leader anyway? Ah. Then I remembered. I remembered when I saw it. The, uh, it was the time when the Philistines came into the land. We hated the Philistines. They were warrior-like people, and they, quite frankly, were lazy. They didn't want to spend time plowing the ground and, and growing their own food. They specialized in war. And they waited until the, our harvest came in and they would come and plunder the land and take our food for themselves. They did it year after year after year. And we couldn't stop them because they had the ability to smelt iron. So they could make swords and, and other implements of war out of metal and we couldn't. So if we had tried to stop them, they'd be with metal swords and we'd be with clubs. I mean, we'd lose all the time. Saul's strategy was to kind of ignore them and let some of this happen. Um, but one day, the Philistines came in so deep into Israelite territory that Saul couldn't avoid them. They came right down into the area of Succoth. And when they came that deep, even Saul knew he had to do something. So as he had done in days of old, he sent out news to all of the tribes and tens of thousands of Israelites showed up for battle. We can't surrender our land. We've got to stand for our, keep our homes. And it was, I went. My father sent me and my next two brothers with me. The three of us joined the Howards and it was marvelous to see how all Israel came together. But where we were all situated in the area of Succoth, so we were on one hill and then there was a valley and the Philistines were on the other hill. And there were more Philistines than there were Israelites. And that was a bit scary. But we're here to be soldiers. We've got to get on with business. So we began to set up camps, uh, setting up tents, hauling water, all that kind of stuff to get ready. And as we're all getting busy, getting ready for whatever battle would come, suddenly we heard shouts and cheers from the other's hill within the Philistine camp. And that seemed to part like the water. And one man, one giant of a man, walked through the center and came down to the center of the valley between our two camps. He wasn't just a man. He was Goliath. And he was impressive. He stood over nine feet tall. It's enormous. And he was well protected for battle. Not only was he well trained, but well protected because he had a bronze helmet to protect his head. He had a bronze shirt to protect his midsection in case someone tried to hurt him there. That shirt weighed 125 pounds. 125 pound shirt! We had guys in our army that didn't even weigh 125 pounds. Didn't weigh as much as the guy's shirt. He had bronze greaves on the bottom of his legs. If someone tried to take him out from underneath, he'd be protected. 
He had a bronze javelin on his back. A bronze javelin. And he had a spear that was the size of a weaver's rod. And the tip of it, the tip of it weighed 25 pounds. How do you throw a spear that heavy? With a body like that, that's how. His legs looked like they were cut out of marble. His arms looked like they were tree trunks. This guy was impressive. And as if that wasn't enough, he had his own shield bearer. Not a little wee shield, but I'm talking a huge piece of wood. It's like a picnic table that would be in front. And there was a guy that, that held it up. And he was holding this piece of wood so that this, he would be protected from all kinds of enemies. And this guy's job was just to make sure that uh, the Goliath was kept safe. And Goliath came in all of his glory and all of his physical intimidation. And he stood there and he began to talk to us. And he yelled up and he said, servants of Saul, why should we all fight today? Why should many men die? Just send me your champion, you servants of Saul. Send me your champion, the best you've got. Come down here and fight me. And if he kills me, we will serve you. But if I kill him, then, then you will serve us. Let's go on and have a battle man on man. And that will determine the fate of this war. Oof. I didn't volunteer. Because you know me, I wanted to be able to share the glory. Let someone else make a name for themselves, you know. Let them do that. No, that was quite the speech. The next morning we got up. Saul said, well, we better get ready for battle. We've come in for battle. Let's get ready for it. So, okay, we all lined up. We're all getting ready to go and and uh, Saul says, come on, guys, a little enthusiasm here. Let's hear a war cry before we go, as we go. Okay. Uh, Ruah. Ruah, guys, let's, let's go. And Goliath walks out and we went, hoo-ha. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Maybe not today. Not, not, maybe not with him. Um, anyone want lunch? I feel a little pecked. I could, anyone else feel like lunch? No battle that day. No. Every morning and every night, Goliath came out, challenged us, intimidated us, insulted the God of Israel, glorified the gods of the Philistines, insulted, blasphemed every morning and every night. So we didn't fight on day one. Two. Three. Or four. The rumors started to get out in the camp, our camp, that this guy wasn't only enormous, but this Goliath guy was from Gath. He came from the city of Gath. You know, that, that city that was part of all the land that God had promised to the people of Israel, but had never been conquered. Joshua had never defeated it. No one had defeated it because it was filled with giants and it seemed impregnable. impregnable. Nobody thought you could defeat Gath. And here was Gath in person. This wasn't just Goliath. This was Goliath from Gath. I know what God promised that it would be ours, but give me a break. Look at this guy. 
Five days, nothing. Ten. Fifteen. Twenty. Twenty-five. Thirty days. He came and insulted us and the God of Israel day after day. No battle. No one had the courage. Saul figured out, you know, we need some more incentive here. So he came up with an incentive plan to get someone to go and challenge this guy one-on-one. And it was, you know, it sounded pretty good on the surface. He said, okay, uh, whoever goes to fight Goliath, I'm going to make him rich. I'm going to marry my daughter. Okay. And he'll be exempt from taxes for their whole life. I mean, that sounds, sounds pretty good. Um, but it was interesting the talk around the campfire that evening. What guys were saying. You know, I know he said he'll make us rich, but you know, money's the root of all evil. You know, and, um, you know, uh, marrying the princess would be nice, but, you know, I got a sweetheart back home. And I wouldn't want to break her heart. So out of deference for her, maybe I'll, maybe I'll pass on this. And taxes? If, Personally, guys were saying, you know, it's my way of contributing to my society. I mean, I wouldn't want to lose the opportunity to, to help my, my country as a whole. I, want, I love paying taxes. Yeah. No one's interested in those incentives. Nobody wanted to go and die. So nobody fought. 35 days. 40 days. But that was the worst day. The 40th day, that was the worst. Because that was the day my little scrawny brother showed up. Ah, how embarrassing. Dad had sent him, Jesse had sent him with with bread and cheese to help sustain us in this 40-day battle. And David shows up and realizes the battle hasn't even started. Why was I sent? What are you guys doing here? You're just standing there? And and Goliath came out and he gave one of his rants. In the morning, and as he, he gave his rant and everyone witnessed it and David saw it, David turned around and said, yeah, but so what's the problem? He's inviting a challenge. How come no one's taking him? And he says, are you kidding me? Look at that guy. Tall, big, heavy, shirt. Like, look at that. No one's going to take him on. We'll all get creamed. David says, but why? Why isn't anyone willing to go? Why, why? And news got out to, to Saul. There's at least one guy who doesn't seem to be afraid. So he summoned David to his tent. He's got at least one volunteer, right? He brings him to his tent. We loved tent meetings, by the way. Because meetings that take place in a tent, everybody hears. And we could all hear Saul say, Are you crazy? How are you? You really want to go fight him? Yeah, David said, I'll go fight him. He says, You're not trained in battle. You're small, you're little. How, what in the world are you going to do? All you've been doing is looking after a few sheep. And David answered him with, a, with courage that I had not heard from him before. He said, the Lord helped me protect my few sheep from a lion. And he helped me protect my few sheep from a bear. And the Lord will deliver this man, this uncircumcised Philistine, into my hands as well. Whew. Well... Saul said, you're my best option. My only option. Okay, go for it. And try my armor on. Well, Saul was big, it didn't fit. And David was polite, it's not my style. Forget that. 
And I saw the most crazy sight of this, my little brother walking down the hill to the bottom of the valley with nothing but his stupid shepherd's staff and that dumb old sling he kept playing with all the time whenever he was out with the sheep. And he's walking down. Goliath came out for his rant. He stood at the bottom as he had for 40 days, master of all that he surveyed. And he looked. He saw this speck. The speck slowly moving down. And he squinted. And he saw a boy with a shepherd's staff. Was he ever insulted? I've waited 40 days for this? Am I a dog that you send a boy with a stick? And David didn't stop. He kept walking down towards Goliath. And Goliath got furious and he said, Boy, today I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David stopped for a second and looked back at him. You come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you with the name of the Lord Almighty. And today I will feed your flesh and the flesh of all the Philistines to the bird of the air and the beasts of the field. And the world will know that there is a God in Israel. And the victory belongs to the Lord, of it, the God of Israel. Goliath had never heard such insolence. For a boy, like especially. And you could tell he was angry. And he starts walking towards David. He was heavy, you know, so it took a while to get, to get moving. Um, but the guy with the picnic table was having troubles, right? Because he's got to move this huge piece of wood to try and protect Goliath where he's going. And David kept walking closer. And then he began to run. I mean, I might not like my little brother, but that guy's got wings on his feet. He can fly. And he starts running, but not towards Goliath. He starts running around Goliath. And I'm looking at going, oh, for crying out loud, that's genius. Because, you know, the Philistines have all these heavy metal weapons, so they're really good in close combat. You know what they're not good at? Distant combat. And David was keeping out of range of Goliath. So Goliath had, could do nothing about it. And he stayed out of range. And as he was going in the circle, the guy with the picnic table was having real trouble. <laughs> he couldn't move the, the piece of wood far enough, fast enough to keep up with David. He outflanked him. And I could see what he was going to do. I was waiting for it because I knew this kid was amazing with that slingshot. And he was going and running and running. And he got the sight that he wanted. And he planted his right foot. And then he threw Thousands of soldiers holding their breath. And one stone whistling through the air was deafening. And then it hit. God's eye went wide. And he was down on his face. David didn't miss a step. As soon as he threw, he leapt off his right foot right towards Goliath. Because he knew he had to act quickly. He had no sword. All he had was, was a sling. So he ran up, got Goliath's sword, cut off his head, held the head, severed head up with his hair so everyone can see. Well, the guy with the picnic table suddenly thought, this isn't a good place to be. 
And he run, starts running up the hill. He beetles up the hill towards the other Philistines. And the other Philistines say, what in the world? If a little kid could do that to our champion, what is this army going to do to us? And we stood on the other side of the hill looking down at what he did and said, I said, if that's what my little brother could do, imagine what we can do as real men. Come on, guys. After 40 days, it's time to attack. And for the first time, Ruah became Ruah. Let's get him. And we raced down that hill and up the other side. And the Philistines abandoned their camp and ran back to the gates of Gath in humiliation. And then we went back and plundered their abandoned camp. One of the biggest victories that Israel ever had by my dumb little brother. But what I saw was his heart. What is a leader? Men look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The heart of the leader was revealed in David. He, like everyone else, knew that God had promised that Gath could belong to them. He, out of all of Israel, not Saul, not even Jonathan, were willing to act on what they knew. David was. A leader is someone who knows what God has said and is willing to act on it. They're not just understanding the Bible, they're willing to put it into practice. David was willing to do that, and he became perhaps the greatest king in all of Israel. Being a leader has nothing to do with your height or your hair or your muscles. It has to do with a heart that is willing to do what God says he wants done. Are you a leader? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart like David, a heart that is soft and pliable, a heart that is quick to put into action your truth, a heart that is desirous of doing your will above all else. Lord, help us to be people like that. Lord, give us a new heart, a steadfast spirit. We might be leaders in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. That as James challenges us, that we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers of it. Help us, Lord, to do so. We offer ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we conclude the service, I uh, just want to give you a chance uh, to, um, to respond. If you'd like to attend the dessert on Tuesday night, there's an insert on the front side or on the back side. There's some details a little bit about Crosstalk Global. It's a fantastic ministry. And if you'd like to attend, just put your name and the number of attendees and drop it in the, in the, the boxes as you leave this morning so we can plan accordingly. Now, would you please stand for the benediction? And now may the love of God the Father, the grace 
and grace and peace of his Son, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and always. Amen.